You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. There's a scene at the end of The Devil Wears Prada where the character Miranda Priestly, a famed and famously demanding fashion editor, gives her young assistant Andy a rare compliment. I see a great deal of myself in you. This comment comes after a turning point in the movie where Miranda has just saved her own career by brutally betraying someone who has been enormously loyal to her. So Andy is horrified by this comparison and she rejects it. She says she's not sure that she wants to be like Miranda. I mean, what if I don't want to live the way you live? Oh, don't be ridiculous, Andrea. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants to be us. But does everybody want the glamorous, punishing life at the center of this story? That's the central question of the movie and this episode. I'm Susie Banacarum. And I'm Jessica Bennett. And this is In Retrospect, where each week we revisit a cultural moment from the past that shaped us. And that we just can't stop thinking about. Today, we're talking about The Devil Wears Prada and the way it depicts women's ambition. But we're also talking about how a cautionary tale about sacrificing everything for your job ended up glamorizing exactly that. Jess, as we've said, we're talking about The Devil Wears Prada today, a movie starring Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway, and this Mm -hmm. fraught relationship they have. Anne Hathaway is a recent college grad. It's her first job. And Meryl Streep plays her famous and powerful boss. And this is a circumstance you and I are somewhat familiar with in lots of different variations. No No comment. No comment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've both worked for some famous and powerful women, some not so famous, but certainly complicated women is how I would describe a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I think that's partially why I feel so connected to the movie. And it is a movie I have seen countless times. It came out in 2006, and I honestly can't tell you when I first saw it. I don't remember if I saw it in the theater, but... Have you seen the movie? Do you remember kind of what you thought about it or what you've thought about it over the years? I mean, I, of course, saw it. And I think it came out at a time when I had just moved to New York and had dreams of becoming a journalist. So I was very interested from that perspective. Obviously, it's like not that true to life, but it's really fun. Though I forget a lot of the details. So can you give me the Cliff Notes version? Yeah, I think the more recent version is Spark Notes, but same thing. I will give you a little summary of the movie. So Andy, who I've said is played by Anne Hathaway, has moved to New York right after college to pursue a career in journalism. She was the editor-in-chief of her college paper. She has this dream of working at The New Yorker or someplace serious like that. Of course, this is what all my students want to do also. So Andy goes to interview at a big publishing company thinking she's going to get a job at some serious place. But randomly, the HR person tells her there's availability to be the second assistant to Miranda Priestley, who is the editor-in-chief of Runway Magazine, which is Mm -hmm. a fashion magazine 
That character is played by Meryl Streep and is widely understood to be a very thinly veiled depiction of Anna Wintour, who is the famed longtime editor of Vogue magazine. Okay. So despite this amazing opportunity, Andy knows nothing about fashion or fashion Mm -hmm. magazines. She gets the job because she sort of has this moment while she's standing in Miranda Priestly's office where she pitches herself as hardworking and smart, and Miranda decides to give her the job. Okay, so we all know Miranda is just brutal as a boss, but paint us a little bit of a picture. She's pretty terrible. She's cold and demanding, and she makes really unreasonable requests that are essentially impossible. Like at one point, she demands that Andy find a flight for her during a literal hurricane, and it's like, Mm. why can't you get me out of here? Mm -hmm. And then there's another example where she demands that Andy get her the unpublished manuscript of the next Harry Potter book for her daughters. Mm. And Andy actually achieves that one, but... Andy is determined to survive this job for at least a year because everyone keeps telling her that a million girls would kill for this job and that if she can just stick it out and succeed, that Miranda will be able to help her get those serious jobs she really wants. Mm. Which is not dissimilar from what these types of bosses actually do promise. In real life. No, I mean, it's exactly what these bosses do promise. So initially she fumbles and she doesn't really hide her disdain for fashion. Like Mm -hmm. there's all these moments where they're doing fittings and she's kind of like making a face or Mm -hmm. snickering. And that is very much noted by Miranda, who finds it super Mm -hmm. annoying. And then there's this first assistant um, played by Emily Blunt. So Andy is the second assistant. Miranda has two assistants, and that's a seniority thing. The first assistant is more senior than the second assistant. And Emily Blunt is just hilarious in this. She steals a lot of the scenes. And she just cannot understand Andy. Like, she doesn't think she's deserving of the job. She doesn't understand her fashion. She's just kind of like, Miranda's decided to hire you, but I'm just putting up with you, essentially. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, do you have some prior commitment? Some hideous skirt convention you have to go to. But one of the other fashion editors, played by Stanley Tucci, takes Andy under his wing, and she goes from being this unfashionable rube to hot and stylish. (laughs) Of course, could have predicted that. And in the process, she becomes seduced by the environment and this desire to please Miranda. So that is the context of the movie, and that is where we are when we get to this scene that we played at the top of the episode. Yeah, okay, so the scene. What drew you to this scene in particular? Well, I love this scene. I think I always have, but over time, I've become kind of more drawn to it because it really encapsulates, for me, the central tension in many women's careers. In my Mm -hmm. career, in the careers I see of my friends, Mm -hmm. I think when you're young, you do want this life. You want to be hugely successful. You want these big jobs. But you don't really fully understand the sacrifices you're going to make. You're told that there will be sacrifices. But as you go through you see what that really means for your life. And that is really complicated. So this dynamic, this tension between them is a reflection of, I think, something that we all struggle with internally, really. And the scene begins where this tension is playing out. Yeah, so the scene comes at the end of the movie after Andy has gone through her transformation. transformation. Yeah, her fashion transformation. Now she's wearing, like, amazing clothes and has, like, a great (laughs) haircut. And she does look... I will say, impeccable. And she has seemingly bought into this world and kind of in a Stockholm Syndrome kind of way. You see that all of her relationships are in tatters. She keeps ditching her friends and family. And she and her boyfriend have just broken up because she's so obsessed with her work. Oh, yeah, she's obsessed with her work. I feel like that's also another frequent flatlining these types of things. It's like the boyfriend can't handle how devoted to your career you Yeah, are. can't handle it. And they're in Paris for Fashion Week. And even coming on this trip to Paris is supposed to be an indication that Andy has lost her way because it is Emily, the first assistant, who is supposed to go on this trip. It is a huge deal to go to Paris Fashion Week. And Emily has been talking about it for months. And now... Andy has gone instead because Miranda has taken a liking to her and has said to Andy, you can come to Paris instead, but you have to tell Emily. Oh, right. She's like pitting them against each other. And now in Paris, Andy has discovered that Miranda is about to be fired and replaced by a much younger European editor. And she's desperately trying to get to Miranda to warn her. And then unbeknownst to Andy, Miranda has already been aware of the plan Mm. and has outmaneuvered the publisher 
by getting the younger editor another job. And it's a particularly brutal move and moment in the movie because Miranda has saved herself by giving the job that had been promised to the character played by Stanley Tucci to this other editor to get her out of the way. And so Stanley Tucci, who is this really loyal deputy who's worked for her for years, who you see in an earlier scene is so excited about this new role, now is stuck still at Runway Magazine with her. And now Andy and Miranda are in a car together, and Andy is reeling from this because she has seen all of this go down. And Miranda acknowledges that she saw how hard Andy tried to warn her and was impressed by that. And then she says to her, I see a great deal of myself in you. And obviously Miranda means this as a compliment, But you can see just by the reaction on Andy's face that she does not hear it as a compliment. Mm -hmm. And she objects. She says, but I would never do what you did, Miranda. And Miranda reminds her that she already did. She already has. To the other assistant she replaced to go on this trip. I know. That was different. I didn't have a choice. Oh, no, you chose. You chose to get ahead. You want this life? Those choices are necessary. But what if... This isn't what I want. I mean, what if I don't want to live the way you live? Oh, don't be ridiculous, Andrea. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants to be us. It's so funny because she truly can't conceive of a world in which people don't want what she has and what she has to do to hold on to it. So, yes. yeah, it is a, it's a very poignant moment in that way because Andy has realized that she's doing the same thing. Right. And just to finish this moment, when they arrive at the event they're going to, Andy turns and leaves Miranda alone. Mm -hmm. And while she's walking away, Miranda calls her and you see Andy look at her phone and it shows Miranda's name and Andy throws her phone into a nearby fountain. That's right. (laughs) So she's like relinquished this life. We don't know how she gets back to New York. We don't know anything else. But she has like walked away in the middle of like the most important week of Miranda Priestley's year. And back in New York, we see Andy go to a job interview at a newspaper, the kind of okay. serious publication she has said right. all along she's she wants to work She's back in her, like, at. dowdy clothes. Although still with a much more fashionable touch, I will say. Okay, okay, okay. She still has the fabulous haircut. And so this editor who is interviewing tells her that he's reached out to Miranda for a reference, and you kind of see the look across mm. Andy's face. And he says he received a note back saying that Andy was the biggest disappointment, but he'd be an idiot not to hire her. Mm. And ultimately... That's how we know this is a cautionary tale. Andy has made a deal with the devil, the devil in Prada. She's lost her way. (laughs) She's disappointed her friends and family. But by the end, she's seen the error of her ways. She's saved herself. And luckily for her, because it's a fantasy, she's reaped the benefits anyway. She's now gotten this other job because Miranda has still given her her seal of approval, which it is a fantasy, right? So it is the fantasy we all have that that boss who was terrible to us secretly thought we were amazing, right? Like that is the redemption we all want. So obviously this movie is not high art, right? Like I don't want to make it seem like we're going into the ins and outs of this movie because I think it's the best movie ever made, but it is the rare chick flick that isn't centered on a man. It's about a girl and her ambitions and figure out what she wants. The boyfriend storyline is a secondary plot point, and they don't end up together. Right. And the role of Miranda Priestly is not something we saw a lot in this way, right? A woman who is highly successful, unapologetic, fully in charge, and is really seen as a leader in this industry. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, like, there's those movies about female ambition in a way from the 80s. Like, I'm thinking about Baby Boom, and wasn't there Working Girl? Yes, those are both movies I love, and they are both about women trying to make their way in their working lives. But in both those movies, the romance is still very central, Mm. and they do end up with a hot guy at the end, right? Right. And that is seen as part of the happy ending. And here, the happy ending is that she gets the job she wants, right? That's a really big difference. 
Did you relate to Andy in watching it at the time? Like, I remember, yes, I too wanted to be a serious journalist, but I don't know that I ever thought I would be capable of walking away in the same way she did. I definitely didn't relate to that. I mean, I felt like I had to do whatever it took to succeed, and I was willing to do that. I was not the girl who was going to throw her phone in the fountain. I had, you know, bills to pay and student loans and did what I had to. And immigrant mentality, probably, too. Yeah, definitely immigrant mentality. I did not feel like I was in a position where I had a safety net. So there was yes. no place to go. I mean, I guess that's the fantasy aspect of this movie is that most people are not in the position to throw their work phone into the fountain <laughs> and just yes. hope that you're going to get another job. And I actually, I went back to my LinkedIn because I couldn't remember where I was in my own career when this in happened. 2006, but in, yeah. So in 2006, I was working at ABC News. At that time, George Stephanopoulos was the host of This Week, which I think Mm -hmm. he still hosts sometimes. And I did have a very intense female boss who definitely had some Miranda Priestly-like demands. Okay, so now you have to tell us what kind of demands those were. One thing that seems very Miranda-like is that she needed her daily papers to be unwrinkled. So before she came in, her assistant would put her papers on her desk, Mm -hmm. and she had to make sure she got only unwrinkled copies, which I'm not even sure how you guarantee that. I know she wasn't ironing them, so that's, like, a very funny thing. She must have gone to the newsstand and, like, selected. Oh, unwrinkled copies of the papers. I thought you just meant papers in general. Oh, no, the the papers. Like, the newspaper. The newspaper. So she had to, like, make sure she wasn't getting the top one at the bodega. She had to, like, dig. Yeah, she just had to make sure that, like, whatever New York Times or New York Post she was picking up, they were pristine. Hilarious. And we had a very intense rule that you would get in trouble for if you didn't, when you sent an email, on the two line, the names had to be in order of seniority. So, like, if I sent an email to two people and one of them was junior, they had to be second on the chain or... I... I think that I do do that. <laughs> like, I don't well, demand I still other do people it too. do that. But I think that I do do that because it just kind of makes logical sense. But I'm sure younger people who, where email was not their primary way of communicating or who came up on Slack probably think that's insane. Yeah, and I also do that still too, just because it's locked into my brain. I can't get it out of my brain. But the other one that I think is particularly funny is if we had a cake in the office for someone's birthday, the assistant had to make sure to hand out the pieces of cake in the order of seniority. <laughs> so it's like, that's so funny. Okay, so hi- like true hierarchy to everything, like very hierarchical. It was this kind of obsession with order, right? Like, Mm -hmm. things had to be a very specific way, Uh which uh just were not chill at all. (laughs) I will say, though, that with so many of these stories, it's like there are plenty of male bosses that do this kind of shit, too. Maybe not with the cake, or maybe it's like the menu is just playing out in different ways, but we don't necessarily call them demanding in the same way. We just call them men. Well, I will tell you a great story I know like this about a male boss at ABC is I have a friend who was an assistant to an executive producer and he used to make her follow him to the bathroom and he would continue to shout notes at her through the door and she'd have to like take notes while he was peeing, which is disgusting. But yeah, I don't remember anyone ever calling that guy a diva. And to be clear, this is a woman who I enjoyed working for enough that I went to work for her again, right? She was demanding and difficult, but I saw that as just the way you had to be to be in these jobs. I didn't have a lot of examples of people in these jobs who were kind and compassionate and wanted to, like, coddle me. This was the deal. And also, for what it's worth, if you're running a company or whatever the job may be, you probably don't have time to coddle your assistant. Like, on some level, maybe I'm sympathetic a little bit to some of this. Cancel me. (laughs) Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Am I remembering correctly that this movie was based on a book? Yes, it was based on a best-selling book of the same name. It was okay. written by Lauren Weisberger, and the book came out in 2003. Okay. And the book was itself a cultural phenomenon. It was really popular. It came out at the peak of the chiclet era. And most relevant is that Weisberger had actually been Anna Wintour's assistant at Vogue. Uh. Which is why it was so widely understood that Wintour was the inspiration for Priestley. It's probably worth spending a little time, for those who might not know as much as we do, talking about who Anna Wintour is. Yeah, so she is not just the editor of a fashion magazine. She has literally Mm -hmm. been called the single most important figure in the $300 billion global fashion industry. As you might expect from a famous fashion editor, she has a very distinctive look. You know, this classic Mm -hmm. bob that she's had for years with bangs. She's often seen wearing sunglasses. She's always flawless. And I was actually thinking, I wonder if I've ever seen her in casual clothes. Yeah, (laughs) so I I haven't. Okay. Anna Wintour and jeans. And apparently she does have jeans oh. because I found some pictures of it and she looks great in them. But she is sort of in your mind, if you've seen lots of images of her, which I have and I'm sure you have too, this very polished person. Mm-hmm. And she became the Vogue editor-in-chief in 1988. Isn't that crazy? 35 yeah. years ago. Is she the longest servant? Like, that's a huge amount of time for an editor-in-chief, to be clear. I mean, most people last two years in a job in media, yeah. right? So yeah. the fact that she's been atop the most famous fashion magazine in the world yes. for 35 years is really an achievement. And just wild. I mean, she's been in that job longer than a lot of people have been alive. And mm-hmm. she was promoted in 2013 to Condé Nast's artistic director. So she doesn't just lead Vogue anymore. She is the editorial leader of all the titles at Condé Nast, which include The New Yorker and Vanity Fair and Wired and a bunch of other things. Yeah, I remember watching that documentary about her. What was it, The September Issue? Yes, there is a documentary about her called The September Issue. It was released in 2009. And the thing about Anna is she's very much seen as a visionary, as someone who can see things coming down the line and lead (laughs) rather than follow. So she's credited with seeing the power of celebrity culture really early in the cycle and realizing before other people did that it made sense to put celebrities on the cover. It used Mm -hmm. to be models Mm -hmm. on the cover of Fashion Magazine. It's Anna who's really credited with changing that. And she runs the Met Gala too, right? Which is like the biggest celebrity event of all. Yes, she throws the Met Gala, which is a benefit for the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute. It's the first Monday in May, which means fashion's biggest night is finally here. You know, just running that would make her a huge cultural figure. Celebrities Mm -hmm. are desperate for invites to that. Yes. So it's really hard to overstate her power and influence. But also, 
she is famously inaccessible. She is famously kind of known to be someone with very high standards. Isn't the rumor that if you are an assistant or a junior editorial person at Vogue, you are not allowed to make eye contact with her in the elevator? That's what I've always heard. Yes, I've heard that you're not allowed to say hello to her or make eye contact. And frankly, that's been true of other bosses I have had. So that does not surprise me as a rumor. I feel like that could very much be real. Okay, so how close to reality do we think the book and the movie and actual Anna Wintour are? That's a great question. The Devil Wears Prada is technically fiction. So I reached out to Samita Mukhopadhyay, who worked for Anna Wintour as the executive editor at Teen Vogue and happens to also be the author of an upcoming book on women and work and ambition. Of course, Samita was an editor, so she obviously had a very different job than Andy did in the movie. But here's how Samita describes being interviewed by Anna Wintour. I was very anxious to meet her. It just was never a position I ever thought I'd be in, which would be to interview with her. And when I had that opportunity, unlike Andy, I researched like crazy for how I would show up that day. You prepared. Yeah, I prepared. And there were multiple articles written about what to wear and what not to wear the first time you meet Anna. So what are you supposed to wear and what are you not supposed to wear? Right. Well, interestingly, a lot of the articles say not to wear black, that she doesn't like black. And this has kind of been like a long rumor for her that she's just like prefers color and brightness. Upon meeting her, like, I don't think it would have mattered at all what I wore. And so it was kind of like, it was like deeply humbling to be like, oh, it's like this big character that exists that's a larger than life character, but you're actually just like a person that's trying to make the proper business and editorial decision for this brand that you oversee. It was a big wake-up moment because I planned so much for what I was going to wear. And I bought myself a Gucci handbag. And I practically wore it hanging around my neck. None of it was necessary. Like, she really just wanted to talk about my editorial experience and, like, my taste in, like, culture. So it was definitely one of those uh, myth-busting moments where I was... And she wasn't wearing sunglasses either, by the way. Okay, I love all the behind-the-scenes interview stuff, but I have to say the point Samita made about Andy not preparing for her interview is, like, the least relatable thing to us as journalists. Like, why would you not prepare for an interview where you're trying to prove you want to be a serious journalist? Yeah, it's so weird to me, right? You would at least just do some research. And also, it's hard to believe that any woman in America who wanted to work in media would just not know who the editor of the biggest fashion magazine in the world was. Like, that is still a big job in media. Any person in America. Yeah, (laughs) it feels true. But the idea that Anna is actually a much more complex character than the cultural characterization of her isn't surprising, right? Or the cultural caricature of her, in a way. Yeah, and that's something that I feel like you discuss a lot in your work. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something we keep coming up against in this podcast, which is there's often more complexity to the characters we are looking at, and especially with women. Yeah, and I think we've seen that a lot with people like Robin Givens, whose identities are so flattened by these characterizations of them, or a Britney Spears who, you know, had her complexity denied and was just dismissed as crazy. And in general, I think that's what's really smart about this movie, going back to Devil Wears Prada, Mm -hmm. which is that it takes something that is also dismissed as frivolous and for women, fashion, fashion magazines, Mm. and it explores the ways in which they're actually serious and worthy of examination. Yeah, isn't there a famous scene where Miranda Priestly sort of schools Andy in how she got her sweater or something like that? Yes, the speech you're thinking of is the Cerulean speech, which is a color blue. They're in a meeting and someone has presented Miranda with two belts and Andy has snickered and said, those two belts look exactly the same to Mm. me. And she's sort of expecting everyone to be like, ha-ha, yes, but Miranda is really icy in her retort. You select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. And it was introduced on this runway and that runway until you fished it out of some bargain basement. It's like a very funny moment. And that speech has become pretty famous because it does, in a really succinct way, explain why fashion does have meaning in people's lives, why our lives are all impacted by the way fashion works. Right. And so she's basically saying, you think you chose that sweater, but actually, let me tell you, that sweater chose you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Susie, I want to go back for a moment to the Miranda character in the book, because the book is actually pretty vitriolic. I mean, I reread the book last night, actually, and it is so vitriolic, like kind of in a shocking way to me now, looking back. At points, Book Andy calls Book Miranda a bitch. She talks about how much she hates her. Okay. I mean, my takeaway from the book is that the author hated working for Anna Wintour. Okay, not a lot of complexity. It's like, that's what it is. Yeah, it's a pretty one-dimensional character, and she's just awful. And interestingly, the limo scene is not Mm -hmm. in the book at all. The ending plays out completely differently. So in the book, the way their relationship ends is that Andy says to Miranda, fuck you, Miranda, fuck you. Wow. She's fired, obviously, for swearing at her boss. And the whole thing in the movie about how Miranda writes her a good reference and Mm -hmm. there's kind of this redemption moment for Miranda, that doesn't happen in the book at all. Okay. So this is like a revenge book. Totally. (laughs) Essentially. Like, she's she's trash. Yeah, it's like a revenge fantasy, right? I don't think this happened in real life. I see. So I think this is like the book she's written about what she wishes she had done when she left Vogue, right? I mean, that's what it feels like as a reader, for sure. So do people like this book? Is the book bad? What's the response like? I mean, the book is controversial, much more so than the film, because it is really a takedown. And I guess at this time, it was seen as sort of bad manners to gossip about your former boss in this way, like, which feels kind of quaint now, um, like in the post-Gawker era. But mm-hmm. That's like what literally everyone does. Yeah, yeah. but the New York <laughs> Times actually had two negative reviews of this book. And the first one was written by famed critic Janet Maslin, where mm-hmm. she refers to it as a mean-spirited gotcha of a book. And the other one is called Anna Dearest. And it has this line that is so interesting because I think in a lot of ways it encapsulates kind of what we're talking about in a larger sense here. She had a ringside seat at one of the great editorial franchises, but she seems to have understood almost nothing about the isolation and pressure of the job her boss was doing or what it might cost a person like Miranda Priestly to become a character like Miranda Priestly. Mm-hmm. I bet that was written by a woman. Yes, it was written by a woman. And I think it is the truth that these jobs do come with isolation and pressure. It is a reality that it's not quite so simple. And so the movie really makes an effort to humanize Miranda in a lot of ways. Right. Movie Miranda is more complicated. Yeah, the director has actually said that early versions of the script even felt too vengeful. And I suspect what he is leaving kind of unsaid in that is that's because the book was vengeful, right? It was this like really mean-spirited book. So when it comes time to make the movie, the movie is being made by people who probably have had these senior positions, right? There are two scenes that give you a real window into Miranda's personal life and what her career has cost her on that front in the movie. At one point, Miranda is having an argument with her husband and Andy walks in and the argument is about how she's missed a lunch with him and he says, you know, I could tell everyone was looking at me and thinking there he is waiting for her again, which feels, Mm, you know, like a thing a lot of women go through when they're more successful than their partner. And then later in Paris, there's this very vulnerable scene where she tells Andy she's getting a divorce. Miranda's without her usual armor. She has no makeup on and she's in a robe. Mm. And she talks about knowing what they will write about her dragon lady, career-obsessed, snow Mm. queen, drives away another Mr. Priestley. And she tears up as she laments what it will do to her daughters. Actually, I had forgotten until you were mentioning the Harry Potter part of the movie that she even had daughters. Like, that too is an interesting thing because you expect a woman of this stature or a woman who behaves like this to be this cutthroat careerist who doesn't have a family. Right. And what's kind of interesting in this moment in the movie is that when Andy expresses sympathy for her and says, you know, is there anything else I can do, Miranda kind of snaps back into being her self, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it. And she just says, yes, your job. And that is kind of the encapsulation, right? Like she's had this moment of vulnerability, but then she has to keep going. Like what choice does she have? You know, she is the editor of Runway at Paris Fashion Week. She can't fall apart. And, you know, EW did an oral history of the film 
And the director said something that I thought was really interesting. He said that in his vision, Miranda is the heroine of the piece, not the villain, because it's a coming-of-age story for Andy to learn about what it takes to be great at something. Isn't that Mm, so interesting? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So it's really about how she, Miranda, was ultimately successful, not just a terrible bitch. Right, like, it's really a movie about what it costs to be Miranda and teaching Andy that she may not think it's okay, but eventually she's going to have to make some of these hard choices too. And that is really why the limo moment is so critical to the film and why I chose it. It's fundamentally a film about what it costs to have this kind of life, this Mm -hmm. kind of career, the isolation, the pressure. And that's something I think Meryl Streep really conveys in this portrayal and why, in a lot of ways, Andy feels hopelessly naive to me. You know, even when I saw this the first time, it seemed to me like Andy had a lot of growing up to do. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. (sighs) Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. So, Susie... We, you know, obviously both related to this movie, I think, when we first saw it in a different way than we might now. Like, back then, we were aspiring journalists or young journalists, and now we are more the established journalists. So I was curious for you, I mean, you have run really big newsrooms. You've been a boss in a lot of these jobs. What do you think the costs of that success have been for you, if any? I think for me, the costs are really personal in terms of just how I operate in the world. Like, it takes a lot out of you just physically to do these jobs. You have to be willing to work just an enormous amount of hours, and you have to be emotionally available to a very large group of people because you're managing a big team. And all of those things take a toll on you, right? I think there are people that can do these jobs that don't have that experience, that learn to have a set of clear walls where they're not sort of taking in a lot of the energy around them. Or, frankly, I think we know because there have been studies that a lot of leaders are actually sociopaths or psychopaths, I think, is what the studies say. That says leaders are sociopaths? Yeah, there's one study I remember reading that claimed that as many as one in five business leaders have some psychopathic tendencies. So... That's 20%. I don't know. I'm so surprised by that. So 
I think if you are able to have that kind of separation from you and the people whose lives you, you know, to some degree hold in your hands when you're managing a large team, I think it can be a lot easier. But for me personally, that has been a real struggle. And I think it kind of has reoriented me in terms of how I think about ambition and whether or not I want to have these big jobs, whether or not I think these big jobs make sense anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that the headline here is that we hold women leaders to higher standards. Like, I guess Miranda Priestly, I don't know that she was in a position like you were speaking of where she really cared about the emotional well-being of her (laughs) entire staff. It was more like she was in charge and she had these assistants. But like, we expect women leaders to be nice and we don't expect male leaders to be nice. So was Miranda Priestly kind of a bitch sometimes? Like, yeah, but if she was a man, would we call her a bitch or would we just call her demand? Decisive. Right. And so, you know, she clearly put Andy or her assistants or whatever in precarious situations, but that's happened a million times before. And so I think that what we know is that there's this likability trade-off for women. Like, the more power they gain, the less we like them. Statistically proven time and time again, and it applies to business or it applies to politics. And so women are always having to adjust their demeanor to try to make up for this. And I think what Miranda Priestly represents is someone who wasn't willing to adjust her demeanor. And thus, she was kind of like a frigid, ice-cold, yeah. <laughs> ice-queen bitch. But is that fair? You know, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, and I do think this is something when you're a woman in a leadership position, you're constantly trying to thread the needle on, right? Because on the one hand, you need to be somewhat decisive and you need to be someone who moves things through. You can't just be like spending all your time being emotionally accessible or whatever. But on the other hand, I think my entire career, I have been given the note that I need to soften myself, I need to be less blunt, I need to work a little less quickly and assume that people aren't always following. Like, those are notes I've gotten repeatedly in my career. And I think I really struggle with that still because I am not naturally like a very soft, sweet person. (laughs) You know, it's like I am pretty blunt and straightforward. And I sort of think that's one of my strengths. Well, that's kind of what you need to be a leader, in fact. But as I've gotten older, I can see when it has an impact on someone and I try and dial it down because I recognize that not everyone can deal with that. Well, and that's part of the pressure, right? You're in charge of all these people and to some degree their well-being, but you have to discipline. There is hard stuff. Sometimes you have to do layoffs. Thankfully, I've never had to do that, but I can imagine that's hard no matter who you are. Oh, God, I can't believe you've never had to do a layoff. That is really lucky in this media environment. But just even aside from those pressures, it's just hard to show up as your best self every single day, right? Sometimes you just don't or you make mistakes and the stakes feel higher because you're the boss and everyone's paying attention. Right, like a bad day can have more extreme consequences. Yeah, I mean, everyone I know in a leadership position struggles with that at times. And actually, we have a friend who runs a newsroom who said to me recently, it's not fun to be in charge anymore. And that makes sense to me, right? People are just so self-conscious all the time. They're so worried they're going to do something that's going to get them canceled in some way. Which I guess is good on the one hand, like that we're all more conscious of creating the kind of workplaces we want to be in, but it's also complicated. I think part of the reason I have sometimes felt like I'm groping around in the dark trying to figure out how to be a good leader is that there just weren't a lot of great examples of leadership. You know, most of the leadership I saw was Miranda Priestley-type leadership from men and women. So it's not like there were all these models for me that I could be like, okay, here's who I'm trying to be. I was sort of trying to figure it out on my own. I'm still trying to figure it out to some degree. Yeah, and there's still not great models, to be honest. I mean, I think that's why we've seen a lot of women leaders who rise up really quickly and then immediately get shot down. Yeah, and that actually leads me to something I want to talk about, which is the whole girl boss thing from a few years ago. I've always joked that all these toxic girl bosses were just women who saw the Devil Wears Prada and instead of seeing it as a 
cautionary tale. They saw it as a path to success, right? Mm. They agreed with Miranda Priestly that everybody wanted this life, that for better or for worse, she is a depiction of unapologetic female power, and we don't see that a lot. So they emulated it. Wait, should we define the girl boss? So this was a term that was popularized in 2014 when Sofia Amoruso, who had founded a wildly successful company called Nasty Gal, wrote a book called Girl Boss. And Girl Boss was framed as the reaction to Lean In, which was Sheryl Sandberg's blockbuster book. Big debate being sparked by Sheryl Sandberg. Her brand new book is generating a kind of feminist firestorm. She calls it leaning in, gunning for the corner office, not the cubicle. And so if Lean In was saying, like, you know, go strive, rise up the corporate ladder, Girlboss was saying, like, no, actually, you can be scrappy. You don't have to come from money. You can do it your way. And over time, there was this generation of leaders who rose really quickly and were very, you know, media savvy. They were all very attractive. They, like, started populating the cover of every magazine. And they were sort of heralded as this new generation of women leaders. But a lot of their businesses failed. A lot of them were criticized for various things. And so ultimately, that term now is more of a pejorative. Like, it's used on TikTok to, like, criticize people who are seen as too ambitious. There's that phrase, don't grow boss too close to the sun. They had too much unbridled ambition, and it came to bite them in the ass. Right, because there's also that meme, gaslight girl boss gatekeep, right? Like, it's basically talking about how the girl bosses were actually also positions of privilege, and they sort of gatekept other people out of the arena. But I feel like part of what the issue is, is there isn't really a clear definition of what a girl boss is. I mean, it's a fake word. <laughs> like, it's a made-up word that was created as a joke and then became a real thing. And, like, why are we calling women girl bosses anyway? So they should just be bosses. So I sort of am like, you can't define that. Like, it came to represent a striver. Right, like a very earnest striver who embraced a certain kind of corporate feminism. Yes. And equality in this world was just like getting to be the boss. You were an unapologetically ambitious woman like Miranda, but with a feminine twist. So like, if you're a girl boss, you're less threatening in a way, right? You're certainly not the crazed, desperate career woman of the 80s we talked about in the Newsweek marriage episode, right? You're not Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. You're like a fashionable and millennial pink feminist. (laughs) Well, and in some ways, the media and society has... Enforce that by adding girl in front of your title. But ultimately, the girl boss, as you said, was pretty limited. And Amanda Mole wrote a great piece in The Atlantic where she talked about why that was. So there was some idea that there was equality just based on advancement, right? It kind of ties capitalism up with female equality, which I think feels inherently flawed. And then she said something that I thought was really smart. She said... The girl boss argued that the professional success of ambitious young women was a two birds, one stone type of activism. Their pursuit of power could be rebranded as a righteous quest for equality, and the success of female executives and entrepreneurs would lift up the women below them. But that's not really what we saw. In fact, even the person who popularized the term girl boss, this woman, Sophia Amoruso, she eventually resigned. The company went into bankruptcy a couple years after that book came out. And there were a number of complaints about discrimination and toxic management accompanied by lawsuits from her employees. Yeah, I mean, I think it's slightly more complex. Like a lot of these stories and quote-unquote downfalls were flattened a bit in the media narrative. I'm actually profiling Sophia now for a piece for Elle. And so it's been interesting to actually dig into what really happened versus how the media, though I hate saying the media, we we are are the media, media, portrayed it, but certainly it represented something. Right. And I think she wasn't the only one, in fairness to her. There were a slew of other examples of female leaders who were lauded as girl bosses or who leaned into that branding, but eventually came under scrutiny and were forced to step away from the companies they founded. Just like off the top of my head, there's the CEO of Glossier, the luggage brand Away, to that woman who ran Things underwear. 
I think, you know, there was a shift at a certain point in what was perceived as acceptable boss behavior, particularly for these companies and these founders who had branded themselves as socially conscious, if not overtly feminist. And I think also what you're saying is is that these power structures were built by men. So if these women were replicating these power structures, it wasn't like they were doing something unique. It's just the case that if you're a woman, you're more likely to face an immediate backlash. Look at Elon Musk. I mean, he has had a million of these kinds of complaints around him. Right. Or Adam Newman of WeWork or Travis Kalanick of Uber. And all three of those men are fine. And actually, Samita Mukhopadhyay, who we spoke to earlier, and as I mentioned, is writing a book about women, work, and ambition, also talks about the hypocrisy she sees in the girl boss downfall. I'm always cautious when we too eagerly tear women down. I'm not going to all women's matter this or something. Obviously, like, women are capable of the same heinous atrocities and labor oversights as men. But I do think that when we go after women for a specific behavior that is considered completely normal in men, uh, you know, my eyebrows raise a little bit. I'm like, yes, no leader should be toxic. We should absolutely be creating environments that are equitable. We should not expect people to work and sacrifice everything. None of those things are sustainable. They are not things that we should support in workplaces. But also they are a result of under-resourced environments, right? Often women-led companies don't get as much money as male-led companies definitely true for startups in a ridiculous way. And then you add to that these kind of toxic dynamics or leaders that don't have enough experience to successfully lead in those kinds of environments. Or a lot of times people that would fit into this girl boss mold, the very characteristics that make them good for those roles are literally what make them bad as leaders. Yes, can <laughs> right? confirm. You know, so like being like judiciously committed to your vision, being really good on stage, being really good in the press. It's like those people are monsters behind the scenes, right? But putting that to the side, the majority of women that are starting businesses aren't these kind of quote-unquote girl bosses, right? They're young women that are trying to find their voice and their name. Or a lot of times women become entrepreneurs because they hit the glass ceiling at work and they were not getting the recognition that they deserved. And so they decided to go out on their own. And so, you know, it is worrisome when you focus a lot on a small number of people, when there's this kind of like broader ecosystem of women trying to create things on their own terms. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary in Indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. 
Samita has written about how while the girl boss concept is flawed, it did provide a model for women who don't always see a path to leadership, like women of color. And people like Samita and I are often excluded from those kinds of spaces. So there are some things about this that weren't all bad. But, you know, any model of female leadership generally does eventually face a backlash, right? I mean, we've just seen that in this country. Any kind of female advancement eventually faces a backlash. Yeah, and in fact, I think we're seeing that more now. Like, after these girl bosses, these so-called girl bosses toppled, a lot of the investment to female-founded companies actually went down. By the way, investment to female companies was always really low. And that's also partially what was kind of interesting about this being a media sort of created story. Women receive, I think, less than 2% of VC funding. So there were never a huge number of girl bosses to start with. So the disproportionate attention they got in the beginning and then in the backlash is also indicative of something, which is we love a story about a woman rising and then falling. (laughs) That's just a thing we love in this country. Also, it's probably worth noting that in terms of the backlash, the Miranda Priestleys or in the real world, the Anna Wintours of the world didn't emerge completely unscathed. Right. But interestingly, not really about their years of boundaryless or potentially inappropriate leadership styles. You know, I think when Black Lives Matter happened, there was a lot more focus on the ways in which fashion and fashion magazines really reinforced a certain kind of whiteness. And, you know, Anna did have to apologize for that in June of 2020 after facing a lot of criticism. Oh, that's right. She issued an apology for not doing enough to address diversity issues at Vogue. And she said... I want to say plainly that I know Vogue has not found ways to elevate and give space to Black editors, writers, photographers, designers, Hmm. and other creators. We have made mistakes, too, publishing images or stories that have been hurtful or intolerant. I take full responsibility for those mistakes. I mean, pretty big a deal that she apologized. Like, she's not the type to stand down or apologize. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, but I think this was obviously a more serious allegation in some yeah, ways. Yeah, well, and then also interesting that she was able to keep her job. Right. She kept her apology. job after that apology, right? Unlike yes. the girl bosses who kind of toppled and then maybe found their way back in some smaller way. She has stayed on top of the Condé Nast editorial operation. And obviously, I don't want to conflate white supremacy and bias with slightly toxic or even very toxic behavior. This is obviously a deeper issue, but it shows that she had sort of gone from being immune to this kind of criticism at the point in which the Devil Wears Prada is made. Mm -hmm. It didn't lead to some kind of backlash towards her, like, oh, I can't believe you treat people this way. It's considered kind of charming or funny or whatever. And now she's sort of gotten to the point where she's not given a pass completely in that way. And actually that same year in 2022, a few months later, the New York Times published a really lengthy piece asking if her diversity push had come too late. And former employees said that Anna had fostered a workplace that sidelined women of, of color. And, you know, she had helped set a standard that favored white Eurocentric notions of beauty, which, you know, isn't a surprise. That's something you also see in the movie, right? There's a real central focus in the movie about a very sort of classic beauty standard. There's a lot of focus on thinness in the movie. There's like this famous line where Emily, the first assistant, says, I'm just one stomach flu away from my goal weight, which is like a thing me and my friends always jokingly say to each other. I mean, people, yeah. Everyone Everyone says says that, that, right? Or did, or said, maybe Gen Z doesn't say that Maybe they have like more sense than we did. And, you know, it wasn't just Anna who set these standards, but as arguably the most powerful person in fashion, she did play a large role in this kind of centering The other thing, too, is that in particular for women of color, but really for any marginalized group, is that you are often forced to represent your entire demographic. Right. So if you're a gay leader, there's also this expectation. If you're a trans leader, it's like you're doing more than just your job. You're representing an entire category of people and your success or failure carries that weight. And I do think to some degree that gets back to this idea or this thing I was saying at the top, which is it does feel like you're carrying a lot of weight in these jobs. Uh You know, you're not uh 
immune to the understanding that you're not just representing yourself. Like when I was given the opportunity to run newsrooms, I was almost always the only woman of color or the first woman of color to have that opportunity in that role. So I was clear that I wasn't just, you know, doing a job, but I was also representing a kind of progress. And if I did it badly or if I embarrassed myself, I was letting down much more than just my own mental health. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, more than just yourself or your employees, you're letting down like everyone who strived to be in a role like that and who maybe had not gotten the opportunity. Well, and also the other thing I think is that you recognize that you are the representation for a lot of people. Like I recognize that in those roles, there were women in the newsroom who saw me in that role and were like, oh, I can do that too. So if I did it poorly or I was not a good example, that I was not setting a good example for them. I was not giving them a path because they were like, well, I don't want to be that bitch, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Which is terrifying. I mean, terrifying. Yeah, it terrifying does really a lot of weigh on you. Like, I do think it does take a real toll. I mean, I'm someone who struggles with a lot of anxiety. I have in my life had very serious depression. And it is the case that when I am in these jobs, it triggers a lot of those issues for me. And the reason I often leave these jobs is because I've gotten to a point where I no longer feel like I can balance and I need to sort of step away to recenter myself. And I think that is a good segue into kind of where we are now in terms of how we're thinking about work as women and where women's ambition is. You know, where does all of this leave us? Like, if we're not going to be the Miranda Priestleys, we're not going to be the Sheryl Sandbergs, we're not going to be the girl bosses. Like, what's left now? Lazy girls. Lazy girls. Quiet quitting, great resignation. It's like, I feel like it's kind of the end of ambition in my mind, right? I think, well, do we want to have it all? I don't want to have it all anymore. I just want to have enough. So... As you know, I am very skeptical of all of these little phrases yes. that enter into the case. And validly so, validly so. No, it's not the end of ambition. And also, when we talk about ambition, are we really just talking about women's ambition? Like, nobody asks, is it the end of ambition for men? Yes, that's true. And yet, these trends, these memes, this kind of linguistic popularity of terms like, yeah, lazy girl jobs or quiet quitting or I don't dream of labor, like everything (laughs) that you see on TikTok these days, which is essentially anti-work rhetoric, is largely being pushed by people of all genders. Right. So I don't know. I do think that like gender bias even creeps into the way that sometimes I talk about this issue. But I also think that, you know, there's a little bit of, like, delightful, in a way, idealism when it comes to young people, but also naivety about the fact that, like, all right, kids, you got to work. Yeah, Yeah, I want to be a lazy girl, too. I'd love to bed rot all day. Like, (laughs) that would be awesome. I don't want to have a job. I know. I'd Um, be great at goblin mode all day, every day. All day, yeah. Yeah. Like, what other terms can we insert here, (laughs) you know? But, like— you still need money to live. And I know that, like, sure, we'd want to reject capitalism, blah, 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 but, like, we are still living in a capitalist society. And so I take some of this anti-work rhetoric with a grain of salt, though I do believe that hopefully by questioning things like this girl boss culture or hustle culture or the way that we have devoted our entire beings and entities to work over the past 10, 20 years— is a good thing. Yeah, I want to throw to Samita one more time because she had something interesting to say about this too. Workplace hierarchy isn't really going anywhere anytime soon, right? Like, we have to figure out how management structures that are equitable, that work, that play to people's strengths, that support them in being as innovative and creative and impactful as possible. That's why I think we're frozen in time right now, because we know that we don't want this kind of unfettered ambition at any cost, toxic workplace, all bad, (laughs) all bad words. We know we don't want that. But we don't know how to apply that in our lives yet. I think that's led to this trend in like quiet quitting or lazy girl jobs or people really calling it in at work, which ultimately isn't going to actually make people happy, right? What actually makes you happy in your life is living a life of integrity and authenticity and, and joy. When you're checked out of something, you're not finding joy in your life. And that's fine. I think we all go through phases. We have to do that. But that's not a model for women's advancement in the workplace, right? It's a problem and it's a wake-up call for working conditions 
conditions, but it's not ultimately a strategy that's going to be successful or or make us happy if if that's ultimately the goal. I think Samina is right. And this isn't the end of ambition generally, but it's hopefully a workplace shift that is happening. Susie, where does that then leave you? I mean, I guess what I'm doing is projecting to some degree, because maybe it's just the end of my ambition. <laughs> like maybe the reason those memes speak to me is that I have come to kind of want a quieter career, one where I have less mm-hmm. responsibilities, one where I get to chat with you. <laughs> right. like, but I will just say, that's not unambitious. That's a different kind of ambition. And so I think part of the problem is that we have come to define ambition in these really rigid ways that involved, yeah, climbing up the corporate ladder, being a boss, like having a big team, being in management. And there are so many different ways to be ambitious. And so I guess that's what kind of gives me hope to what you're saying. Oh, yeah, that's actually a really good point. I've never thought about it that way. It's true that I'm not lacking in any ambition. It's just my ambitions have really changed. I'm not trying to get the bigger job. I'm not always trying to get the bigger paycheck. I'm just trying to do work I love and work that feels creative and work that I hope is kind of meaningful or is certainly at least meaningful to me, even if it's not that for everyone else. So that's actually a nice way to think about where that leaves us. And maybe we leave it there. Susie, I want to tease our next episode. We're going to be talking about what it means for a woman to be, quote, past her prime. Which I don't think happens, for the record. (laughs) But we are going to talk about aging and what that means for us, but also just how women are treated as they age in the culture. So I think it's going to be a really interesting one. This is In Retrospect. Thanks for listening. Is there a pop culture moment you can't stop thinking about and want us to explore in a future episode? Email us at inretropod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at inretropod. If you love this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you hate it, you can post nasty comments on our Instagram, which we may or may not delete. You can also find us on Instagram at Jessica Bennett and at SusieBNYC. Also check out Jessica's books, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18. In Retrospect is a production of iHeart Podcasts and The Meteor. Lauren Hansen is our supervising producer. Derek Clements is our engineer and sound designer. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Sharon Atiyah is our researcher and associate producer. Our executive producer from The Meteor is Cindy Levy. Our executive producers from iHeart are Anna Stump and Katrina Norbell. Our artwork is from Pentagram. Our mixing engineer is Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing help from Mary Dew. We are your hosts, Susie Banakaram and Jessica Bennett. We are also executive producers. For even more, check out inretropod.com. See you next week. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.